Well, it's nice to be with y'all. I don't get to say that very much. My my wife is from Texas, so she speaks a a, a variant dialect of of Southern a, a little bit, and um, she. Uh, but I, I I'm a Northerner, so I tend to use the second person plural from the North, which is you. Right? It's not very informative. <laughs> Um, it is really a privilege to be here. Um, the, uh, it's, it's great to, to see uh, this tremendous facility and uh, to have interacted with um, the uh, people that are, that are part of the, the CFC and the, and the Bush Center, and it's, uh, it's really a delight to be here. Um, as I was saying at lunch, uh, for those of you who are at lunch, I apologize. There will be a few things that I say here that you will have well, they will sound eerily familiar to you, but um, for those of you who weren't at lunch, uh, the, the Southern Baptist Convention has been crucially important in my own life. I became a Christian through a Southern Baptist Youth Revival in Northern Virginia. Um, I really learned to love and study the scriptures in a Southern Baptist church in Springfield, Virginia, where I grew up. Uh, and then when I was in seminary, I did my internship at a Southern Baptist church in Southern California. So for me, the SBC has a, a a very warm place in my heart, and it's a, a, an extremely formative influence on my own spiritual life. So it's it's nice to be at, at Southeastern um, to give back at least a, a tiny little bit. All right, so um, am I blocking the screen? I'm okay? All right. Um, today we want to talk, or tonight we want to talk about Editing the human genome, and I'll have more to say about what that means as we go along. But I want to start by contextualizing what I'm going to say. We live in an era where biotechnology is moving like a very fast freight train. And to put this in perspective, let's look at what's happened since Jeff Harden went graduated from high school. I graduated in high school back shortly after the discovery of electricity in 1977. And um, and so uh, let's just look at the things that have happened. In 1978, the first test tube baby, Louise Brown, was born in the United Kingdom. Surrogate motherhood became a thing in the 1980s. Uh, Other reproductive technologies soon followed, and uh, they go by exotic acronyms that I won't take you through. 1997, after I had been a professor for six years at the University of Wisconsin. Dolly the Sheep was cloned. You may, you may have heard of her. And there were lots of journal covers like that with Xerox copies of sheep and things like that. Uh, in 2001, James Thompson, Jamie Thompson at the University of Wisconsin, developed the medium that allows culturing of human embryonic stem cells. And you see the title or the, the cover of Time Magazine in 2001, this, um, The Man Who Brought You Stem Cells, um, uh, is uh, one of America's best in science. But there were other co- covers that talked about the, the battle over stem cells and things like that. In 2013, the first report of a cloning of a human for so-called therapeutic purposes to generate genetically matched stem cells was announced. And five years later, in 2018, reproductive cloning. So cloning of a, a uh uh, a monkey by what's called nuclear transfer occurred to produce the first cloned primate. All of this has happened in my post-high school life. And um, we could have cited many other examples. The point is that biotechnology is moving extremely quickly 
and it is dominating the news. And so we as believers need to think about that, um, grapple with what is happening in the world of biotechnology, especially as it's applied to humans, and think in a biblically sophisticated way about that. That's what we want to try to do. And we need to do this because science is insufficient. Now, here's James Watson, a Nobel laureate for the discovery of the structure of DNA, not known for being a Christian theist, I might add. Here's what he said. The belief that surrogate mothers and clonal babies are inevitable because science always moves forward represents a laissez-faire nonsense dismally reminiscent of the creed that American business, if left to itself, will solve everybody's problems. Science is not uh, inherently, it doesn't inherently involve moral reasoning. And as Christians, we need to think not just in a, uh, use moral reasoning, but to think biblically and theologically about these topics. And uh, that's true for all of us. Uh, the 21st century really is, as, as Ken said, the century of biology. And it's very likely that many people in this room or loved ones of those of us here in this room will have to decide about ethically challenging technologies during their lives. It's just a fact of modern life. But not only that, I would argue that we as Christians need to be articulate spokespersons for a Christian worldview in the marketplace of ideas. And at Wisconsin, that's certainly where I find myself. And uh, one of the reasons for that is, as, as Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to be the salt of the earth. We need to be uh, a leavening influence in society. And that means we have to think well, be articulate, and engage the culture. All right, so... Um, that's why we need to think about this. And, and let's now then talk about what is genome editing? What, what is this after all? Well, we're going to start at a high school level, all right? Now, how many people had biology in high school in this room? Almost everybody. Mark, Mark was late raising his hand, but I'm, I'm guessing he's on board. Okay, great. So, um, yeah, all of us had high school biology, right? You, you may, maybe you remember what's called the central dogma of molecular biology. DNA goes to RNA goes to protein. All right. You're a little weak on that last part. So um, the point is that uh, the DNA molecule that you see behind me uh, provides the information to transcribe, to produce a matching or complementary piece of uh, RNA and that RNA is read off three bases, three building blocks at a time, using a complicated machine called a ribosome to make proteins. And so what that means is that DNA provides the information to make proteins. But it's much easier to work with. And that means that if we modify things at the level of DNA, we will modify the corresponding proteins. So when people talk about genetic engineering, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, what they are doing is manipulating DNA with the idea that uh, we will cause the production of a different sort of protein as a result of manipulating the DNA. And uh, when we talk about genetic engineering, what we mean there is that there is a suite of technologies that are going to alter DNA. And when that altered DNA is mass-produced as cells divide, through the process of what's called DNA replication, eventually some of that DNA will, get its, will find its way into the eggs and sperm of an organism, at least for many animals that we might want to consider, including humans, so that ultimately these changes will be inherited. They will be heritable changes in DNA. They'll get passed down 
to the next generation. So that's what we're talking about. So that's from high school. But now we've graduated to college. So um, let's talk about uh, a current way that we can edit DNA. There are new technologies appearing all the time. Uh, Ken just brought to my attention that a paper that I'd heard about has just appeared in, in the journal Nature, which suggests a, an even better way of doing this. But I'm going to talk about the way that's pretty standard right at the moment. Recognize that this is a technologically moving target. So the way this is done now is to use a complicated enzyme and series of other molecules in what's called the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So it's pronounced CRISPR like the CRISPR drawer in your refrigerator. And what is this? CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. I dare most of you to say that three times fast. Really difficult. So that's why we say CRISPR. CRISPR um, uh, utilizes things that are called th these clustered repeats, these CRISPR elements. These are pieces of DNA that are sprinkled throughout the DNA of an organism. In addition, it uses an enzyme, a protein, that um, helps to facilitate chemical reactions called CAS, which stands for CRISPR-associated genes. And CAS9 is gene number nine in the series of CAS genes. So this is a protein that's programmed by little pieces of RNA, that middle thing we mentioned in the previous slide. The RNA is used to guide the... Um, CRISPR-Cas9 system to a particular spot in the DNA. And then it's going to cut it, and then it's capable of being edited. If you want, you can think about this whole system sort of like the genetic equivalent of a word processor. So your word processor, you are the person who identifies the relevant section of your text. You put the cursor in a particular spot. You highlight a piece of text. And then what do you do? You can copy, you can cut, and if you cut, then you can paste things in, or you can join the text that you deleted, and you just get rid of the word that you highlighted. So really, this is a molecular tool for doing that to DNA. And now, this was originally discovered in bacteria. It turns out that bacteria use this system as a kind of a um, defense against viruses. So bacteria can actually be infected by viruses, and the original discoverer of the system was studying how they do that. Okay, so I'm just going to call it CRISPR-Cas9 the rest of the way. And what you're going to take away from that is word processing of DNA. Okay. All right, so this has become a huge deal. So the people who discovered this may get a Nobel Prize, but it's also big business. And there's, uh, there's actually a big patent dispute that hasn't been fully resolved. Um, and uh, some of the people involved are shown here. Emmanuel Charpentier, the shorter uh, uh, brown-haired woman in this picture, and uh, Jennifer Doudna. Jennifer is from my PhD alma mater, UC Berkeley. Um, they uh, uh, worked out some of the mechanisms by which this system works. And the application of this system to um, cells, including human cells, has been carried out a lot of it at the Broad Institute, in the Boston area, and uh, one of the main guys there is uh, Feng Zhang, and um, he uh, has also worked with a very famous molecular biologist named George Church, kind of an edgy molecular biologist. So um, they, in 2013, 
applied this CRISPR-Cas9 system to uh, work in eukaryotic cells, cells in organisms like us, including human cells. So this is 2013. We're still in 2019. You see this is not, this technology is not very old, but it has taken the world by storm, the scientific world. All right, so here's a movie. I'm just going to play this movie, uh, and I hope the sound's going to work, and this will give you an overview of how this works. Ready? I'm going to step out of the view of the camera, and I'll step back in when the movie's done. Every cell in our body contains a copy of our genome, over 20,000 genes, 3 billion letters of DNA. DNA consists of two strands twisted into a double helix and held together by a simple pairing rule. A pairs with T and G pairs with C. Our genes shape who we are as individuals and as a species. Genes also have profound effects on health, and thanks to advances in DNA sequencing, researchers have identified thousands of genes that affect our risk of disease. And how genes work, researchers need ways to control them. Changing genes in living cells is not easy, but recently a new method has been developed that promises to dramatically improve our ability to edit the DNA of any species, including humans. The CRISPR method is based on a natural system used by bacteria to protect themselves from infection by viruses. When the bacterium detects the presence of virus DNA, it produces two types of short RNA, one of which contains a sequence that matches that of the invading virus. These two RNAs form a complex with a protein called Cas9. Cas9 is a nuclease, a type of enzyme that can cut DNA. When the matching sequence, known as a guide RNA, finds its target within the viral genome, the Cas9 cuts the target DNA, disabling the virus. Over the past few years, researchers studying the system realized that it could be engineered to cut not just viral DNA, but any DNA sequence at a precisely chosen location by changing the guide RNA to match the target. And this can be done not just in a test tube, but also within the nucleus of a living cell. Once inside the nucleus, the resulting complex will lock onto a short sequence known as the PAN. The Cas9 will unzip the DNA and match it to its target RNA. If the match is complete, the Cas9 will use two tiny molecular scissors to cut the DNA. When this happens, the cell tries to repair the cut, but the repair process is error-prone, leading to mutations that can disable the gene, allowing researchers to understand its function. These mutations are random, but sometimes researchers need to be more precise, for example, by replacing a mutant gene with a healthy copy. This can be done by adding another piece of DNA that carries the desired sequence. Once the CRISPR system has made a cut, this DNA template can pair up with the cut ends, recombining and replacing the original sequence with the new version. All this can be done in cultured cells, including stem cells, that can give rise to many different cells. 
It can also be done in a fertilized egg, allowing the creation of transgenic animals with targeted mutations. And unlike previous methods, CRISPR can be used to target many genes at once, a big advantage for studying complex human diseases that are caused not by a single mutation, but by many genes acting together. These methods are being improved rapidly and will have many applications in basic research, in drug development, in agriculture, and perhaps eventually for treating human patients with genetic disease. All right, so that's the movie. And uh, let's see if you were listening. A pairs with T, and C pairs with... <sighs> okay, time to go home now. That's great. I'm amazing. All right, so let's just review what, what you just heard about. Um, so genome editing, uh, an enzyme is targeted to a specific site, and it makes cuts in the DNA. acts like a molecular scissors. It's the first thing you heard. And uh, if you just make the cut, then the cell tries to fix the cut and usually breaks the gene. But for therapeutic applications, most of the time what we're going to do is to replace the piece of DNA that we snip out with a, another piece of DNA. That's so like using the cut and paste function of your word processor. Uh, now, uh, what wasn't mentioned in the video is that... Um, the, the technology does work, but it doesn't work perfectly. So even though you're targeting a specific piece of DNA, sometimes a different piece of DNA gets snipped. That's called an off-target effect. That's a problem, um, at least for certain kinds of technology. Uh, but as the narrator said, the technology is moving incredibly rapidly. Like The, the, uh, the advances in this technology have been mind-blowing and, and unbelievably fast. So uh, I'm assuming that this will get better and better and better over the next few years. All right, so that's the basic technology. Why would we want to do this? Well, the video mentioned some reasons, but let me take you through a few of them that I find interesting. Of course, the first is from my own lab. That's super interesting, right? So, um, and I work with little worm embryos. It's, the idea here is that you can learn a lot about a Mercedes by studying a Toyota. The worm embryos are the Toyota of uh, embryonic development to the Mercedes, which is, is human development. And uh, we genetically engineer these worms all the time. So this worm behind me um, is expressing a protein at the boundaries between the cells in the embryo. Uh, it's a protein called beta-catenin. And uh, we use CRISPR-Cas9 to make a glowing version of that protein so that you shine light on the embryo and, it and the, this particular protein then glows back at you. And we use fancy microscopes to look at that. Agriculture is a huge application for this. As the video mentioned, here's one of uh, my favorite examples. I come from America's dairy land, so cows are a big deal in Wisconsin. And um, uh, you can see on the, uh, the left is a normal juvenile um, bovine with horns there, but uh, cows have been uh, CRISPRized, and to delete a piece of DNA that's required for making horns. So the reason for doing this is that the cows don't hurt each other when they're in close quarters by butting heads with one another. And so uh, on the right are two uh, cows that don't have any horns. 
You can do this with plants and all kinds of things. Another proposed application of this kind of technology is something called a gene drive. So a gene drive, uh, the basic idea here is that um, if we do our engineering in a particular way, we can add in the machinery for doing CRISPR and Cas9 to a piece of DNA. And uh, over time, the normal DNA at that site in the genome is replaced as cells divide and these enzymes do what they do. Um, and eventually, if, if, if you're looking at a population of animals, as they are breeding, the CRISPRized version of the gene will take over in the population if you design it this way. And that's, it's called a gene drive. It drives out the, the, the normal copy of the gene. And one proposal for this involves mosquitoes. So you can use CRISPR on um, species of Anopheles, the genus of mosquitoes uh, that are responsible for a number of human diseases, including malaria, very significantly. So the idea is to genetically engineer some mosquitoes, release them into the wild, let them do their thing by breeding, and they will pass on this gene to the offspring, to their offspring, and they will begin to pass it on, and it will, the gene will, the engineered version of the gene will proliferate through the population of mosquitoes. And uh, the engineered gene that they want to introduce is one that should produce sterility so that the mosquitoes don't generate viable offspring eventually. And this would kill off the mosquitoes. But it would be a permanent solution if it worked because you would be genetically altering that species of mosquito with the intent of making it go extinct. So that's a gene drive, and um, you, you can see that's powerful, right? If, if you have the, the ability to make an, a species go extinct, you better be sh sure that you want to make a particular species go extinct. And, um, but uh, this has been proposed, and in fact, a very famous gentleman has thrown a lot of money behind this because the Gates Foundation... Um, is um, they really are, are trying to deal with um, uh, health issues in underprivileged countries throughout the world. And so he's really putting a lot of money behind this effort. Now, this has actually been tried. Uh, and recently, there was a, a lot of controversy about an attempt in Brazil to do this, where they have uh, lots of mosquito-borne illnesses. And um, we'll, we'll talk about that. Now, um, what are some issues here? Well, one is what I'll call the law of unintended consequences. This is the Jeff Goldblum problem. How many people are fans of the Jurassic Park series? What's his famous line from the first movie? Anybody remember? Oh, you guys are geniuses. It's great. Yeah, yeah, life finds a way. To, um, and so uh, you may make a change in one organism, but it might have unintended consequences in other organisms. Um, and whole ecosystems could be disrupted. And we have the history of introduced species, like in Australia, for example, that have devastated um, <clears throat> native populations of animals and plants. And there's a question about whether, can you have a do-over, right? If, if a drive can't be reversed, that you, that's, could be problematic. Um, in the U.S., uh, who's governing whether we could even do a gene drive? You know, it's, it's being batted around multiple federal agencies like the F Food and Drug Administration, FDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, and the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA. So uh, it's just an interesting, the whole thing is just really an interesting exercise in science and sociology. 
right, now I mentioned this had been tried. Um, scientists can't actually agree on what's going on, but in, there's a, there was a trial in Brazil recently, and um, it, it seems like there was an initial dip in the mosquito population, and then it bounced back up. But people are disputing that data. I don't know what the outcome's going to be. But it didn't obviously, like, wipe out the mosquitoes. So just recognize that it may be a more complex process than some people might lead you to believe. Okay, so that's another application in, in animals. Another uh, purpose towards which CRISPR editing has been put is to genetically engineer pigs. Pigs are used in what's called xenotransplantation, to take pig organs and put them into humans as a temporary solution while a human is waiting for a human organ donation. Well, pigs have been genetically engineered to make them more acceptable in transplants so that humans don't undergo immune rejection. And um, not only that, but there are um, some insertions in the pig DNA that have been edited out. In fact, George Church, who I mentioned earlier, his group was uh, made simultaneous CRISPR edits in these pigs to make them a better system for doing these kinds of things. Not only that, but CRISPR-edited pigs have been proposed for the following experiment. We could edit CRISPR, um, CRISPR-edit uh, pigs, in this case, pig embryos, so that the pig embryos don't make a certain gene that's required to make a certain organ. So the pig, if it were to make get to the piglet stage, would be missing this organ. It turns out, uh, and people who are at the embryo talk at, at noon know about this, that we can add human embryonic stem cells into a pig embryo. The idea would be to let the, the, pig, or the human cells colonize the region of the pig that would normally form that particular organ. So now you would have a human organ rudiment inside of a pig, which you could then remove and put into a human. That's the idea. So, uh, and if you think that's far-fetched, well, people have tried this experiment, the, the basic experiment. This is a pig embryo, the, the white structures in this embryo, and you can see the eye developing uh, on the right there. The red cells are human cells that were inserted into this pig embryo. So there are all kinds of ethical issues with this technology, but this is another use of, of the, the CRISPR approach. And genome editing works in primates. So um, the first CRISPR-tinkered primates were born in 2014, right around Valentine's Day uh, it was announced. And um, these are a model system for studying human diseases for which primates are the only model. So if you have genetically altered primates, that could be useful for certain kinds of experiments looking at monkeys as a, as a system to understand human disease. And it's... Really, frankly, quite easy. So all you need to do is to inject your mix of, uh, of materials um, into the uh, fertilized egg. And the CRISPR-Cas9 does its thing in the one-celled zygote. And then as the embryo develops, its cells will all, most of them will be CRISPRized. And uh, you place the embryo into a surrogate mother and you look for baby monkeys that have the edit that you were trying to make. Not all of them carry the edit, but some of them do, and that's how the monkeys in the previous slide were produced. If you can do something in a monkey, it is almost always true that you can do it in a human. 
So let's talk about that. What are some applications of genome editing as applied to humans? Let's think about that together. Well, there are a number of applications that involve taking cells out of humans and CRISPRizing them, editing them, and then putting them back into humans. And a great example, potential use of this technology, is to edit T cells. These are cells from your immune system, T lymphocytes that attack um, cells, uh, invading cells in the body. But you can engineer them in such a way that they are uh, kind of hypersensitive, especially towards cancer cells. And so one potential application is to edit T cells in a cancer patient, put them back into the patient, and then these edited cells will attack the patient's cancer. This is an example of editing things that are called somatic cells. Somatic cells are cells of the body, except, so, so these are cells that are everything except for the cells that are going to make eggs and sperm. Somatic gene cell therapy um, then doesn't result in heritable transmission of the edit that you're making. That's the, an important uh, concept for you to grasp. All right, so uh, the somatic cells, um, like T cells or muscle cells or your skin cells, editing in those cells would not get passed on to your children if you were edited. And there are clinical trials underway. Uh, this is as of September 2019. I'll highlight four of them. One is one I already mentioned. Uh, and that is to make things that are called CAR T cells or chimeric antigen receptor T cells. The way that these are made currently is to add DNA in, but the original DNA of these cells is still there. The idea here with CRISPR editing is to replace a piece of DNA in these cells. Might be a better way to make these cells. What these cells do is they attack cancer cells that express proteins on their surfaces that are unique to the cancer cells. These cells sniff those cells out and kill them. And this can have dramatic effects. Ken was telling me about um, a, a son in a family that he knows, I think, who has had a dramatic change in his life. He has, leuke has leukemia, and he's in remission due to CAR T-cell therapy. Very powerful technique. Sickle cell anemia results from a single um, building block change in the protein hemoglobin and uh, one of the, the subunits of hemoglobin, uh, one of the globin proteins. It's well characterized. The idea here would be to take um, bone marrow cells that give rise to blood cells and edit them and then put them back into a sickle cell patient. And those kinds of um, clinical experiments are currently underway. Um, there's every, every reason to believe that these are going to work. Uh, when you just add in a normal copy of the gene, this has dramatically changed the lives of some sickle cell patients who have debilitating pain due to misshapen blood cells that, get, that clog their capillaries. There's something called, non, or, or something called relapsed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. This is a, a cancer of um, white blood cells, basically. This is one of the applications that's underway right now. Something called labor congenital um, uh, amaurosis, or LCA, this causes blindness, and the mutation is known. And so the idea is to deliver CRISPR reagents to the retina to fix this defect. So this is underway. You're going to see many more applications in somatic cells just like this. But there's a, another powerful technology that I think people are hoping to use. This is something called induced pluripotent stem cells. 
And they are due to this guy, Shinya Yamanaka, who won a piece of a Nobel Prize for his pioneering work. Some of you heard about this at noon. But here's the idea. You can take specialized cells from your body, and we can force those cells to make four proteins. Those are called Yamanaka factors. And the Yamanaka factors cause these cells to become a specialized type of stem cell. So they become very, very flexible in what they can turn into. These are called induced pluripotent stem cells. And these IPS cells can be directed to make specialized cells of many different types. But the key thing is they'd be genetically matched to you. And if you have a genetic defect, then we can make these IPS cells. We can edit the DNA of these cells to fix the defect induce these cells to turn into whatever you're, you're missing because of the defect and put them back in your body. So that would be the idea here. So I've, um, this is potentially a very powerful adjunct to CRISPR gene editing. So that's coming too. But again, all of this is with somatic cells, so not cells that give rise to eggs and sperm. Well, what about that? What about editing the germline? Why... Uh, you know, what is that possible and, and what would that mean? So editing the germline means that we're editing uh, cells that will give rise to eggs and sperm. So these edits can be transmitted to subsequent generations. The difference here from somatic cell therapies, these are permanent changes. They are heritable alterations that get passed on from generation to generation. So we're burning these changes in with germline editing. Well, remember I said that um, we could edit monkeys? That was done in a way that leads to germline edits because it was just injecting the fertilized egg. That gives rise to every kind of cell, including those that make eggs and sperm. Remember I also said if you can do it in a monkey, you can probably do it in a human. So... Uh, China is avant-garde in this way, and in 2015, Chinese scientists announced they were trying this in human embryos. And um, <clears throat> in April 2015, they announced that they had done some uh, editing of human embryos in the same way those monkey experiments had been done. They did not allow the embryos to survive, and there were lots of questions about how they did it and whether it was done well and all kinds of issues there. And there are ethical issues with the d intentional destruction of human embryos on top of all that. But this created a firestorm in the media. This is from the journal Nature, a science journal. And a, a friend of mine um, who started an organization that I'm involved with called the Biologos Foundation uh, is currently the director of our National Institutes of Health. It's the largest scientific granting agency in the world. His name is Francis Collins. He is a believer. And um, he's also the director of the NIH. So nominally several layers removed my boss because I get my funding from the NIH. Um, and at the time, he said this, the concept of altering the human germline and embryos for clinical purposes has been viewed almost universally as a line that should not be crossed. Remember the word almost. That will come back very soon. And the NIH has a ban on doing germline edits. Um, and I appreciate very much Francis's leadership in that regard. And uh, some of the, the uh, leaders in the CRISPR technolo technology game got together for a summit. Um, so um, 
In December 2015, they got together, and what were their recommendations? Well, uh, germline editing should never be used to establish a pregnancy. Uh, they cited safety and efficacy concerns, these off-target effects that I mentioned. Uh, some of the way the technology is done doesn't always make sure that all the cells in an embryo are edited, things like that. They said at the time that we need broad societal consensus about um, editing of, of human, uh, the, the, the human germline. <clears throat> and they, they recommended the cautious development of medical applications that cannot be passed on to offspring. So that's somatic cell editing of the sort that I've already mentioned. Now we have clinical trials underway um, in the U.S. four years later. A group of scientists in February 2017, the National Academy of Sciences, these are like super smart scientists, not like Jeff Harden, and um, they called for prohibiting any alterations resembling enhancement. They did not really define what enhancement would look like exactly. However, they did do something significant. They recommended that if you're going to edit anything, um, you should only edit a problem stretch of DNA so that it reflects the DNA that is in a large percentage of the, the regular human populace that doesn't have the particular disease. Does that make sense? So to edit my DNA if I have a problem so it looks like yours, if you're a largely normal member of the human population and you look like yours. So, um, that's the idea. Um, the National Academy said clinical trials of germline alteration might be permitted, but only for compelling reasons. Compelling reasons basically included couples for whom embryo editing is really the last reasonable option for a biological child. Uh, I found that disappointing. Yeah. And so that's where kind of the societal consensus situation sat in the U.S. And... Um, uh, meanwhile, technologies were continuing to be pursued in an experimental sense. So one of the leading experimenters in the world on primates, including humans, uh, human embryos, um, is, is this gentleman. And this is um, uh, Shukrat Mitpolitov. He is at the um, Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. In his lab, they are, they are um, amazing at what they're able to do in terms of manipulating primate embryos. Well, they performed genome edits of um, human embryos, and they edited a gene which, is, uh, which when mutated, causes the debilitating muscle disease uh, and involves enlarged hearts in young adults. So they were trying a therapeutic edit. They did this on embryos, and then they destroyed the embryos. They didn't allow them to develop. So far, I've said that edits were performed on embryos, but they were not allowed to survive. Well, all of that changed in November of 2018 when Hu Jian Qi from um, Southern University of Science and Technology in China, Shenzhen, announced that he had edited human embryos and allowed established pregnancies and that these edited human embryos had been born as two twin girls. Um, their pseudonyms are Lulu and Nana. Not only had he done the edit, but he had edited a gene which he claimed would provide them with a healthier life because 
their father was HIV positive, and this edit is, is thought to decrease the likelihood of infection by HIV. It's in a gene called CCR5. The analysis at a scientific meeting, and there was an absolute firestorm of backlash after this. Here's Francis. Here's what Francis said. This was a profoundly unfortunate, ill-considered, epic scientific misadventure that flouted international ethical norms and was largely carried out in secret with utterly unconvincing justifications. In fact, the international backlash was very strong, and I think for this reason, uh, Herr was um, uh, eventually uh, forced to shut his lab down, and then he was um, imprisoned by the Chinese government. But I, I can't help thinking that this was because of the negative publicity and not because there was an ethical qualm within the Chinese government about this. This ultimately led uh, European and North American scientists, or the, the, kind of the Western world, if you will, to adopt a moratorium on heritable gene editing. And uh, this was announced in March of this year. Uh, and the NIH supports that international moratorium. Uh, and, and Francis wrote the op-ed piece from the NIH that was um, uh, uh, kind of accompanied this publication in Nature. Basically, what this is doing is hitting the pause button on germline editing of humans. That's what it's doing. But why? Well, in part because it doesn't seem safe or reliable. And usually, these kinds of moratoria are not based on an ethical consensus about the applications of the technology if it were deemed safe. And uh, not only that, but these are all scientists making these decisions. And Ben Hurlbut, who's a bioethicist at Arizona State University, his dad is a guy named Bill Hurlbut, who some, some of you might have heard of. Bill was on the uh, President G.W. Bush's Bioethics National Advisory Council. Um, ben Hurlbut uh, said this after the moratorium. Uh, he, he knew it was in the works, and so he wrote an op-ed piece for the journal Nature in which he said this. In calling for standards for producing such CRISPR-edited babies... These leaders have shunted aside a crucial and as yet unanswered question, whether it is or can ever be acceptable to genetically engineer children by introducing changes that they will pass on to their own offspring. That question belongs not to science, but to all of humanity. And I think Ben is right. We are part of that all of humanity, all of us sitting in this room. Um, so th there's a moratorium on germline editing, but I have to say there's some people who are pretty gung-ho about doing lots of genome editing, including these two. You may recognize Mark Zuckerberg. He's pretty recognizable, and that's his wife, Priscilla Chan. They started a, a very large biomedical foundation called the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And um, you can see what, what's behind them on the big screen, right? Can we cure all diseases in our children's lifetime? They're thinking technology is going to solve the disease problem. Now, uh, I think the uh, title from Eon Magazine is pretty interesting. Billionaires say they'll end disease. Evolution says otherwise. In other words, that's the Jeff Gold, Goldblum thing, right? So, um, uh, you know, I, I think they have good intentions in many ways, but I also think they haven't thought about the ramifications of this kind of an ambitious human genome editing project.
Uh, one of the things that's true here also is, um, you know, these guys are pretty well off, right? And so these technologies are going to be available to, uh, for the well-to-do, but not towards the underprivileged. So this is going, some people are also concerned this is going to lead to economic disparities. But it's not just these big guns who are supporting this technology. Um, Ken um, brought to my attention a series that's just appeared recently on Netflix um, called Unnatural Selection. And it's about a group of people called biohackers. Has anybody heard of these guys? Anybody know who these guys? Yeah. So these biohackers, you can get a CRISPR kit for about 150 bucks and do CRISPR in your garage if you want. And some of these guys are doing CRISPR on themselves. Um, and uh, this is a series that's kind of, uh, I'm going to watch this series. Uh, I'm really fascinated to see how it unfolds because uh, this technology is, is not expensive, um, but this is also absolutely unregulated, right? So this is, gives me the EBGBs personally. All right. So this raises one more question, and I'm sorry, you know, I'm a professor, so there's one more bit of genetics we got to deal with here. How easy is it going to be to fix certain kinds of issues, or if you wanted to not just fix but enhance someone, for most traits that you and I exhibit, they don't, of course, it's not due to a single gene's action. So we need to talk about that. Most traits are not single gene traits. So the people that we've been talking about are either fixing things that are known to be single gene traits due to one defective gene, or they're thinking about the traits that you and I have as if they're due to single genes out there, like there's a gene for intelligence or something. And that's just not how genes work, most of them. Uh, one issue that, that is true for most genes is something called pleiotropy. So one gene gene, um, uh, affects many traits. And we know of many, many examples like that. So if you mess with one gene, you're going to get unintended consequences with other traits. That's a huge problem. There's also the reverse problem of, of things called multigenic traits. And this is very common. Your skin color is like this. It is due to the action of many genes, all acting together, that leads to your skin color. Intelligence is like this. It's a multigenic trait. Um, the dashing good looks of Dr. Keith Lee. That's a multigenic trait. And he's got a lot of good genes, I'm going to point out. Yeah. So um, f even if we have the technology to edit genes, recognize that the genetics itself, the genetic basis of who we are as organisms, is sufficiently complicated. It's going to be very difficult to make changes in a highly controlled, predictable way. And one good example of that that I've thought a lot about is autism. Uh, autism is an example of a multigenic trait. There's a strong genetic component to autism, but it's multiple genes. Easy to demonstrate that. Those genes are coming into focus, but the idea that you could fix autism by editing one gene, that's just not how it works. You may wonder, well, why do I think about autism? It's because my son Christopher is profoundly autistic, and he's my 30-year-old. My younger son lives at home with us, and... Um, uh, we won't be able to fix Christopher by editing a single gene. That's just not how his disability works, or in fact, most disabilities. So all this is to say that there is promise in CRISPR technology. There are limitations, however. And then there are these perils. 
So let's conclude, Ben, by thinking as Christians about all of this that I've told you. How, we, how should we think about this? And I have to say it's not easy. Um, but Christians, I think, are, are uniquely sensitized about this. Um, uh, a Pew survey, this is kind of old now. It probably needs to be redone. This is from 2016. Looked at people who are highly committed to their religious tradition People have medium commitment and people have low commitment. And many of these are Christians. And you can see that the people who have high commitment to their faith tradition um, uh, are, have the highest uh, resistance to the notion of, of doing widespread gene editing. And I don't think it's because they're necessarily Luddites when it comes to technology. But I do think it's because they have a sense that what we are striving for with gene editing is more complex and fraught with difficulty than people who believe technology will solve all of our problems. And the key issue here is, what does it mean to be a human, a functioning, thriving human? What does that mean? People in our society do not agree about this. Let's take Jennifer Doudna. Um, In a really touching interview, she described her interactions with a woman who has the mother of a Uh, She was the mother of a child with Down syndrome. And the mother explained, I love my child and wouldn't change him. There's something special about him, something that's so special. And uh, Jennifer uh, Doudna teared up as she was telling the story. And then she said this, it makes you think hard about what it means to be human, doesn't it? Now, I know we have professors in this room who specialize in theological anthropology. We need good work in this area from Christians to inform this discussion. Why do we need this? Because there are other voices in our culture. Here's a very famous strident bioethicist named Peter Singer uh, from Princeton University. And um, he said this, you know, in this respect, experimenting on a human embryo is not to be compared in significance with experimenting on a living sentient mouse. So for him, there is no difference between humans and other organisms, especially humans that are not very far along in their development. So thinking well about these things and articulating it in the wider culture is going to be important. And uh, somebody who uh, did a really good job of this uh, was a theologian named Paul Ramsey, Princeton University, or Princeton, yeah, Princeton University. And uh, it's coming up on the 50th anniversary of a really significant little book that he wrote called Fabricated Man. This was in an era when the word man meant humans. So I want to point that out. And um, in that book, he says this, men ought not to play God before they learn to be men. And after they have learned to be men, they will not play God. So understanding humans and their place in the, in the world and, and their God-ordained mission in the world is important for this discussion. And I, I use this quote, I love it. It's from a, a human geneticist, Elving Anderson, who was at the University of Minnesota. He's passed away. Um, but he said this, what inner resources will individuals have for coping with future discoveries? Well, it's sometimes claimed that questions of the future will be so unique that old values, old values, will be inadequate. But I've not found any basic questions that will not profit from consideration of a biblical perspective. Now, the Bible underdetermines the issues that we need to talk about because it knows nothing about CRISPR. But it provides guiding principles that are of huge significance. 
And what are those? Well, um, Psalm 139 talks about us being formed uh, and being fearfully and wonderfully made while we're embryos. God knows about the trajectories of our lives and our most significant, the most significant fact about our lives is that God knows us and loves us. And he started loving us before we were born, at least some would argue, certainly while we were embryos. And um, what else can we say about humans? Well, uh, the Bible talks about us as bearing God's image, having that um, selem, that stamp on us that reflects our king. And we have delegated authority over this planet. And that includes ourselves in some ways with regard to these, these kinds of biotechnologies. We can say something else. Children are begotten gifts. Psalm 127 talks about that. So children are not products. They're not manufacturing outcomes. They are each precious gifts whom God loves. And in the biblical narrative, especially in the Old Testament, um, the weak deserve special protection. And embryos are certainly in a defenseless position, as are those for whom we would do editing uh, before they're born. So, those are some guide, positive guidelines. What about some reasons for reluctance? Well, we should recognize the tendency for humans to engage in sinful behavior. Now, um, uh, we can say something else. Genesis chapter 2, which happens before the fall in chapter 3, places limits on human knowledge. God places limits for the good of the humans in the garden uh, on them before the catastrophe of the fall. But things, of course, get much worse in Genesis 3. And we need to reckon with the fact that humans are flawed. We cannot assume that each of us is always going to do the right thing, especially when it comes to powerful technologies. Why should we assume that? Our track record is poor. And the biblical narrative helps to explain that theologically. And in fact, our problem is so dire that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, needed to come and die for us on the cross. That magnifies the depth of this problem. Not only that, but positively, the Bible talks about the end goal of human existence as being like Christ. And not only that, you may remember in 1 John chapter 3, uh, John says that we don't know what we're going to be, but we know that we're going to see him. And when we see Jesus, we're going to be like him. We're going to become glorified in some way. We're going to live in communion with him forever. That's the goal of human existence. That's what makes humans unique, and that's the outcome. And that cannot be achieved by biological perfection. So all of this, to me, suggests that we have a balancing act. First of all, we should seek to treat humans as patients, as individual ends versus means at all life stages. That includes embryos. We should desire to use technology to prevent disease. Prevent, preventing disease, I think, is part of the mandate for beneficence, for love. And um, we should be wary of excessive technological optimism. Now, these are intention, and we just need to really realize that. All right, so let's evaluate germline CRISPR briefly, given these criteria. Well, First of all, current approaches cannot guarantee there will not be off-target effects. So it's hard to be 
think that that meets the criterion of beneficence, especially because these are going to be permanent. Current approaches involve frequent embryo destruction if the embryo doesn't have the successful edit. If embryos are ends in themselves, huge problem. And there's the specter of eugenics, of trying to change our genomes towards particular desired outcomes and then denigrating those who don't have particular genotypes. And this kind of engineering project could potentially, need not, but it, it could be part of a return to this kind of thinking. In addition, there's the problem of what's called commodification. Children are begotten gifts. They are not products. Here's what Francis said about that. The application of germline manipulation would change our view of the value of human life. If genomes are being altered to suit parents' preferences, do children become more like commodities than precious gifts? Well, maybe they do. And moreover, the temptation to move from therapy to enhancement of some sort is going to be very, very strong. George Church, who I mentioned at the outset, said this. um, If these fixes for severe diseases, CRISPR-Cas9 edits, are shown to be safe and effective, why would small or large enhancements accompanying the fixes be unacceptable? He wants to do a little fixer-upper while he's in there. And there's going to be a strong temptation for that, let me tell you. And I think we need to resist that. Because now we've moved not from therapy, but we've moved to enhancement in a way that seems inappropriate to me. And something that's not discussed, but equally possible, is de-enhancement. You, you could imagine a, a, some future society where we would choose to de-enhance certain individuals. Um, maybe some of you read the novel Brave New World. He, they didn't know anything about the DNA, even carried the genetic information in that novel, but it's remarkably prescient in this way. The deltas, for example, in that novel. All of this ultimately argues for humility. Francis said it really well. Humility would be a very good principle to attach to any such discussion about human editing. So what are next steps for us? Well, let me suggest for all of you, be informed. Ken is all over the media about scientific advancements. He's really impressive. We can all do this. It's possible. But don't just read it and assume it's right. Be critical thinkers of intake about the news with regard to biotechnologies, including CRISPR. And where you have opportunities, be loving advocates. Try to argue for a biblically positioned approach to these things, but in a way that um, as you carry your mission forward from Southeastern into the world, you engage with people who don't share your worldview and they will be out there. I'm around those people all the time at University of Wisconsin. Well, that's all I want to say and I want to open it up for questions now. Thanks for listening and um, it's really been a privilege to be here. So we have some microphones. Uh, we have some microphones. Uh, Kimberly has one. And, and oh, here, Nancy. Uh, so if you have a question, you can raise your hand. I'm going to start with a question because uh, I just had a terrifying thought as you were, as you were presenting this. Um, one of the good things about nuclear power is that it's so hard to do. 
And so if you do have somebody crazy that's wanting to, you know, create a weapon of mass destruction, it's really difficult for that to happen. And so the question is, how hard would it be for, I mean, it almost, you know, we talked about gene editing to do all of the good things, but as I'm watching, listening to you talk about a mosquito population being changed, how difficult would it be to do something malware? I mean, everybody thought the Internet was going to be wonderful uh, and all the good things that's going to happen. Nobody, nobody just sees it as, a, as an uh, unmitigated good. You realize that there's some bad people wanting to do bad things. Yeah, How some scared people, should we be? Some people talk about bioterrorism. Yeah. So if you genetically engineer bacteria um, or uh, eukaryotic microorganisms, um, it might not be that difficult, I guess. Um, you, you sort of need to have genome information at your disposal, and you have to know there still is expertise. Maybe it's not the same as building a nuclear bomb. Maybe it is. I don't know. But um, you need to know that a particular stretch of DNA is going to have a particular effect. So I'm a little more worried about people just playing around and an unintended consequence being some rogue organism that rapidly spreads through an ecosystem or uh, causes human disease or um, wipes out some crop, you know, like what was that show, The Last Ship on TNT, right? They had this mutated um, uh, kind of rust that was fungal plague that was killing off crops, you know, things like that. That I'm a little worried about, especially because in some organisms you can get easy lateral gene transfer in plants. That happens all the time. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think most people think we're not necessarily headed towards massive catastrophe here. Uh, most people cite the parallel of the moratorium on um, genetic engineering of bacteria in the 1970s that um, where there were a series of principles developed at a, a conference called the Silomar Conference where they developed guidelines for working with bacteria under safe conditions. And then it turned out bacteria didn't cause lots of problems unless you were intentionally trying to create a disease-causing one. And so those regulations were relaxed okay. so that people work with bacteria in the lab all the time. In my lab, it happens all the time. There's no danger there. But, right. you know, we'll see. Okay. Question uh, that you would have, raise your hand, and Kimberly or Nancy will get the uh, microphone to you. Uh, Dr. Hammond. This is a, a brave new world, exactly what we're dealing with here. Um, it seems like whenever something can be done, there's no thinking about should it be done. That's the problem. What can we do to get people to think about, well, maybe we can do this, but should we? How can we get, actually get people to ask that question? Um, I think John is asking a key question. If we're, remember that Matthew 5 mandate of being salt and light? I think that's the question we need to get our society to ask. And I think there are several reasons why that's going to be difficult. I, I, I don't think we, we should absolutely try. Um, but here are a couple of reasons why I think it's going to be difficult. One is that, um, at least in the U.S., we have, you know, it's, it, it's very on vogue to uh, write dystopian novels, especially involving teenagers. And, um, and those are interesting uh, novels and entertaining. They make great film adaptations, that kind of thing. But if you actually look at 
whether we trust technology in the United States, we trust it by and large. If you ask poll questions in a particular way, you'll get pushback on technology. But most of the time, we adopt technologies. Um, and we don't seem to be really afraid of the consequences. These, these little devices, they have consequences. Um, and uh, so the American culture, at least, is probably going to um, tend to mitigate against some people asking questions. And it's because they have what I call the Star Trek view of the universe, that um, technology in the Star Trek world solves poverty, most crime, warfare, uh, and disease. Wow, amazing. Really? Um, and um, so uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, the discussions like the National Academy of Science discussions, if you, if you unpack what they're saying carefully, what they're saying is we don't want it done because it's not safe. Right. <clears throat> well, what if it is? What if it becomes safe? Right. I don't think there's a, a, an answer there from the scientists. Some scientists think we should absolutely move ahead, be captains of our own fate, manage our own genomic destiny, um, move towards some sort of transhumanism, enhancing the human state, that kind of thing. Uh, and then others, so uh, Alta Charo, who's a bioethicist at, at the University of Wisconsin in our law school, she um, was worked for the Obama administration as a bioethics advisor, for example, She's very, what's the word I want to use? Um, let's just say that uh, things that she says sound great as she says them, but if you actually analyze what she's saying, um, she's not really calling for firm lines in the sand, bright lines, lines, as Francis said, that we should not cross. She never uses that language. Remember the National Academies? Part of her language was, if there's only one way to, for people to have children, we should do the edit, whether this would lead to um, kind of opening a Pandora's box or not. She never really addresses that. She sort of assumes that humans are going to do the right thing and that technology is going to press forward, I think. And because a lot of the decisions currently are being made by a group of intellectuals, this is a problem. So some of us who are in positions where we can have a voice probably need to try to insert our voices into the conversation. Maybe that's someone like Francis or someone, you know, at a smaller level like me. You know, we need to be willing to stick our necks out and say, just because we can do it does never means that we should always, it doesn't always mean that we should do it. So, um, you know, I think at the level of um, the general populace, you guys are voters, so you need to let your legislators know you do not approve of certain things, and here's why. If we do that in an issue like, um, let's say, abortion on demand or other kinds of social concerns, we should absolutely be doing it with regard to biotechnology. So that means you have to know enough to be a knowledgeable voter and know where your legislators come down. A lot of them are in the same situation as you, and, but they can be influenced by you. Question here. Uh, my name is Mitch. Uh, so my my question is kind of uh, in regards to how would you handle like a, a germline like disease like hemophilia that's an X chromosome recessive that it would be you'd be targeting a therapeutic 
to try and help that, but it would probably be passed on to the germline. So how would that be dealt with? Um, well, you could edit blood cells in the case of a hemophiliac because it's a, that's a blood, it's an issue with platelets, which are, we could probably edit the particular um, precursor cells that form platelets and introduce those via bone marrow transplant. So you could probably, in that particular case, maybe not, not an issue. Um, It's definitely going to be easier in the short term to do germline edits. It turns out to be easier. It's hard to deliver CRISPR reagents to somatic cells in many cases. So it's not like we can just shoot you up with a hypodermic syringe and magically all of your somatic cells are going to get edited. So, so that I'm concerned about that, that people are going to, uh, germline editing is actually the technological path of least resistance here. But it is the most fraught technological path that we could possibly consider. But because people see the possibility of eradicating a disease, they will go towards germline editing. You know, there are other diseases that are, that are like this. Tay-Sachs disease is an absolutely horrible, debilitating disease due to a defective enzyme that carries out chemical reactions of components of the wrapping around your nerve cells. So they basically they lose insulation. And... Um, individuals who are homozygous, they've got two bad copies of the particular relevant gene, die horribly by about the age of two. It is an absolutely horrible disease. So some people will say we should go for the edit right away there. I mean, but I would argue maybe we need to think about, um, it's a difficult thing to say, but maybe we need to, we need to consider, um, given all of the issues taken together, whether... Uh, individuals at risk for for giving birth to Tay-Sachs children should have children. I mean, I know that's a very difficult thing to say, but and yet the uh, uh, the other issues are difficult. Now, it might become possible someday to do somatic editing in an embryo, so that you could edit the cells of an embryo in utero and repair the embryo before it's born, something like that. I mean, that maybe that will be possible. I don't know. It's not going to be possible anytime soon. But that would be a way to make edits that don't get into the germline. Once the germ cells, or you have a way to shut things down if they get into the germline, or there might be technologies like that. I don't know. I don't know where that's all headed yet. But, um, you know, you're asking the right kinds of questions because I think there's going to be tremendous pressure to use germline editing because it's pretty easy. I mean, all things taken together. Question here. Yeah, um, if someone were to do germline editing um, and say they didn't get the desired outcome or even worse, they got the negative outcome, um, is there a opportunity or a chance to re-edit in a sense? Is there a mulligan in this? Is there a mulligan, yeah. Um, the, um, well, you'd have to do it really quickly. That's the first thing. Um, I think people are thinking now that what they would do is they would do an edit and then somehow do diagnostics on the genome of the edited embryo before it's implanted or before the pregnancy goes on too long, and then they would terminate the pregnancy. That's probably what the average person who's thinking about this would be thinking now. Um, The... (laughs) 
The problem with the off-target effects is maybe you, you, you thought you made an edit. Oh, but wait, you, added a, you made an additional edit. Now I want to fix that second edit. But wait, when I try to fix that second edit, maybe I'm introducing yet another incorrect edit. So there's, a, there's kind of a vicious cycle there. So I, I'm not certain about how that would work, I guess. Um, most of the people pursuing germline editing just assume they're going to do testing on the edited embryos and discard embryos that don't have the correct edits. And if you are treating embryos as ends in, them, in, in themselves, then um, you would be opposed to that strategy. Yeah. Dr. Lederbach. Yeah, my question is just actually if you could develop that a little bit. I, I noticed on one of the earlier slides when, slides when you were talking about the primate uh, editing, and there was a one out of 127 attempts to get a live birth of a primate. Um, so... As we, as we think through this language of therapeutic uh, engineering versus reproductive engineering, I think a lot of people hear therapeutic and they think therapy, this is okay and this is good, and yet it requires the destruction of so much human life to improve the technology. So could you speak a little bit to that, that moral problem? That's a huge moral problem, I think. Um, if, if you believe that human organisms are ants in themselves because they are all image bearers, uh, you're going to be opposed to any kind of solution that involves intentionally destroying embryos if they don't pass muster in terms of their genome. Um, I tend to be quite conservative on all of this um, because of this loss of embryonic life issue. Uh, I guess it would be possible, if you, if you developed a technology that worked really reliably at very, very high incidence with primates, other primates, um, I guess it would be possible to, to consider using that technology um, if the likelihood of the embryo survival was no worse than it was in an unedited situation. I guess then maybe I would feel a little better about that. But in general, I'm not, um, yeah. Uh, what is being done now is experimenting on human embryos, and I just think that's inappropriate. So if there were a way to deliver edits that wasn't an experiment, um, great. And we can do a thought experiment like that. Yes, it's logically possible that would be true, but it's, it's the devil's in the practical details there. So that creates all kinds of problems in, in my mind. Um, and that's why I tend to think that we should pursue somatic cell therapies in more fully developed humans as the main application of this technology. Um, that I can wrap my head around pretty easily. Um, but even there, we didn't talk about it, but recognize that you could do enhancement through somatic editing in an adult. Um, and, you know, we know about performance-enhancing drugs, well, this is like DNA is the ultimate performance-enhancing drug in this case. So um, you could imagine choosing to do that to increase your muscle mass or to do uh, a number of other things. Kyle. So I'm still kind of trying to formulate this question. Um, it might come out sensible or not. Um, so I, I want to put to one side for a moment the ethical issues involved in the experimentation itself, um, not denying that they are ethical issues, but 
assume for a moment that either they've been solved or it's been done and we're just in the Nazi burn treatment problem. Um, how do you start drawing lines in the sand between the kinds of editing that we should be at least, you know, willing to consider, open to, willing to say, well, well, maybe that's plausible, and the kinds of editing that we should say, no, there's no way we'd even think about that. That's terrible. Um, and at what point um, is a, a philosophy of change, something like an Aristotelian um, essential versus substantial change, or substantial versus uh, uh, accidental change, helpful in that? Or is it? <laughs> I'll have to think a bit more about the throwing in the Aristotelian philosophy at the end there. Um, I, I don't think, well, so ultimately there could be questions about whether we're getting a transmutation of a species basically. And so then are we, what, what does it mean for such an organism in terms of its essence? We, we could talk about that. Um, the, the the prior question, you know, it's interesting. I gave a talk at the Anselm House, which is a Christian study center up in the Twin Cities, in 2018, before the germline editing of uh, done in China had been announced. And the entire Christian Medical Dental Society uh, fellowship up there cornered me after my talk and said, why would we not want to do this? If we had a way to guarantee that the edit, we could make the edit, we would absolutely want to do this for horrible single disease, uh, low side particular genes like Tay-Sachs is a single gene defect. We would we would have to do that, wouldn't we? That's that's kind of what they were going for. And I guess if you had a foolproof way to introduce the edit to um, somatic cells, sure, I'm 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 with you on that. But you know we you would have to know that the edit that you made was not going to be deleterious for future generations. And I'm not sure we really have that knowledge. I mean, that's what worries me about it. Now, maybe, maybe we do. You remember the National Academy said, here's our, the, our, the bar we're going to set. What we have in mind, that's what they said anyway, just forget about George Church and his enhancement comments, is a horrible, debilitating disease that always causes horrible, terrible death and we know what the mutation is, wouldn't we want to go in and fix that? I think that would be their criterion. And that's probably the most powerful kind of scenario that could be developed if you knew that it was going to work every time, I guess. Um, because then you would be editing out that defect in future generations. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Like, wouldn't it be good if we eradicated Tay-Sachs? All of us, I think, in this room would say, all other things being equal, the answer to that question is yes. Of course it would be good. The problem that I have is all things are not equal. And the very same technologies that we develop for this use can be used for the other things. And you and I will have a certain set of scruples about that that other people simply are not going to have. And it's true, you know, I... I um, I gave a talk in, in March uh, at a conference in Baltimore, and I had someone write in angrily and say, Christians can't just keep their heads in the sand about these things and um, not think about developing these technologies. And I think that person was thinking about 
their impulse was, well, of course we want to help people. Yes, I want to help people too. But we have to be careful about ends and means and unintended consequences. Um, there's Jeff Goldblum again. Um, and so uh, it makes me incredibly cautious. I mean, I, it's just hard to imagine that there would be, well, I haven't seen a, a, a solid argument that does away with all of the other issues regarding this technology when it comes to the germline. I just haven't seen it. Maybe someone will devise such an argument and then I will accept it. But I, right now, I, I just haven't seen it. Yeah, and it's really tough, right? Because you you feel ah, we got to do this, right? Or we you almost feel that that why why would we not do that? I think that your uh, presentation did a good job about um, showing people outside of biology, outside of the sciences, that people like Bill Gates, uh, Zuckerberg, um, who have influenced uh, editing the human genome in some way. Uh, in our churches, we have a lot of people who maybe are not particularly just in theology. You know, they might be in the marketplace like Zuckerberg. They might be in business. Could you speak to the role that Christians should play uh, in this topic um, within the the sphere of the marketplace? Uh, well, there there are Christians in in big time biotechnology, um, and I would hope that they, when they have the opportunities, would speak about the wise uses of these technologies. Um, Francis Collins is very well connected to the genetics biotech industry. Um, and uh, there are some really sophisticated believers out there. Now, they didn't get in on the ground floor of Facebook. So they're, they are not multi-gazillionaires like Zuckerberg or Gates. And one of the difficulties here um, is people like Elon Musk and others in Silicon Valley are openly and passionately talking about transhumanism. So transcending our human limitations through technology, either genetic biotech or computer interfaces or cybernetics or those kinds of things. And um, money talks. I mean, that's the bottom line. <laughs> SpaceX is happening because Elon Musk is making it happen with his money. Right? And uh, there's a lot of Teslas people drive in Madison, you know, so he is, um, so some of the most successful entrepreneurs are not Christian. And that is a big problem, I would say, um, because while the government might ban a certain line of experimentation, unless we make it illegal, which we have not wanted to do in the United States, then these, these experiments can be carried out as long as you have private funding. Now, in other countries, especially those um, who were influenced by the outcome of World War II, Germany being a good example of this, there are much stricter laws about um, germline editing in place. Now, how long they will stay in place, I don't think that's clear. But right now, they have much stronger laws on the books. We have no laws on the books right now in the United States, nothing. And then plus, we, you overlay that with the patchwork of state laws. Like, I have no idea what North Carolina has tried to pass in terms of legislation, right, um, or Wisconsin, well, I do know about Wisconsin, but, you know, you have the the federal and the state laws working together, and it's all really complicated. 
But none of that, unless you criminalize something, then if you have enough money and you think it's a good idea, you can make it happen. That's that's the entrepreneurial spirit in this country. It brings great goods in some ways and has a potential for many things that are not so good, I think. Yeah. Hi. Uh, so I have one question and possibly a follow-up question because I'm slightly confused about the first thing. <laughs> um, so you mentioned something called um, induced pluripotent stem cells mm-hmm. as a means of creating things that are missing. Yeah. Uh, is that right? Like yep. forming organs and stuff like that? Uh, well, let's say you had a heart attack. Maybe not you, but yeah. maybe an old guy like me has a heart attack. Is My heart muscle's damaged. Mm-hmm. We need to replace those damaged heart muscle cells. Mm-hmm. We could take some of my skin cells, mm-hmm. induce them to become pluripotent, then they act like embryonic stem cells, but I, there was never an embryo involved, just my cells. Mm-hmm. Now we take those cells and we grow them under certain conditions so that they make, um, induced pluripotent cells will make heart cells in a dish that beat, mm-hmm. do all kinds of amazing things. Then we could take those and put them back into my body, let them colonize my damaged heart and help to replace the lost cells that were due to the heart attack. So that's the idea behind these iPS cells as a therapeutic um, yeah, to replace an entire organ will be more difficult, but it is possible to make things called organoids yeah. from a group of these induced pluripotent cells. And then the idea could be, if we got really good at that, if I, my pancreas is on the fritz, you know, we could, we could give me a pancreas transplant or something, or maybe not a pancreas, but a kidney, for example, something like so, that. So, um, with that, so for, for things like, um, Sorry, I just need a clarification on that to make sure my question yeah. wasn't going to sound dumb. But um, for things kind of similar to like what you mentioned, maybe children born without an esophagus or something like that, how would you reckon doing a, a surgical solution that may have some, like give some uh, functionality yeah. or doing a gene editing that may repair it entirely but also may not? Like, how would you reckon between those two things? Yeah, for something like complicated like an esophagus, a gene edit probably wouldn't work. Um, so there you would probably would want to use a regenerative medicine technique using stem cells. People are growing esophagi in a dish, in a bag, and uh, with the idea of then replacing a damaged esophagus or trachea. Tracheas work better than esophagi, both, both pieces of plumbing. But um, people are doing that with lung tissue, and all kinds of other tissues. And this is all involving taking stem cells, and it's sort of like cooking a souffle. So if you don't need to know why a souffle turns out the way it does. You just need to know that if I beat the eggs in a certain way and I cook it at a certain temperature for a certain amount of time and I don't bump it, I'll get a souffle. That's kind of how the regenerative biology is working right now. We know this mix of things called growth factors that you need to get these cells to differentiate in particular ways. Then if you give them a scaffold, um, then they often will colonize that scaffold and differentiate in a particular way to, to make a piece of tissue. We can make heart valves that way really nicely already. So you can make artificial heart valves um, by growing them. So that's part of the future. But then, of course, you could manipulate the IPS cells to edit them to make a super more spiffy organ, I guess. 
And I don't know how I think about that. That's, that sounds like enhancement if you're doing that. So we're not just replacing your muffler. We're giving you an upgrade, right? So we, um, I would want to be careful about that point. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, great. Yeah, I'm still getting my head around the heart cells pumping, bumping in the Petri dish. That's creepy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's alive. Yeah. That's right. So. Yeah. yeah. This has been fascinating, hasn't it? And so I want to thank Dr. Harden for uh, talking to us in a way that I got it. I actually understood what he was saying, and I consider that a great victory on his part, uh, (laughs) that he was able to communicate such complicated and difficult ideas in a way that we understood it, and he presented it from such a... uh, a biblically informed way. I rejoice that there are those in the scientific community like Dr. Hardin who are advancing the kingdom of God in every arena of life, including the scientific arena. May his tribe increase. Would you join me in showing our appreciation to him tonight? (laughs) 